This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. Art of Darkness, we're back for another episode. This one has it all, Brad. All of it. Everything that you could want out of an Art of Darkness episode. Excellent. Good. This is going to have sex. Okay. It's going to have travel. It's going to have okay. uh, vitamin shots, which which oh. are in fact uh, amphetamines. Ah, yes. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> back when it, the vitamins worked, you know? It, it's going to have a mis- <laughs> I mean, Right, right. Yeah, take your vitamins, kids. <laughs> Uh, it's going to have uh, a contested uh, cause of death. I mean, Ooh. it has it all. Drama, Ooh. very high stakes on this episode. Okay. And, uh, we're, today we're going to talk about the great, the singular, uh, arguably the greatest uh, playwright of the 20th century, Tennessee Williams. Mm. Um, this, now, this has the some state personal was named meaning. After, the state was named after him, or he yeah, was named right. after the Fa- state? Very famously, an entire state named after him. No, uh, he actually, we'll get to this, but, but he okay. took the name uh, because his paternal grandparents, his paternal line came through Tennessee, I see. and okay. it had a bit, of, a bit more of a ring than Tom. I see. I always thought it was a, a bad, like a bad BMF first name. Like, yeah. I think it's an awesome first name. Hey, look, yeah. I, it has a real ring. And this is, a, this is a, a person who had a, a wonderful sense of the dramatic, but also the poetic, mm. uh, which is something that we're going we're gonna to touch on. And I have some personal connections to Tennessee in kind of an ab- abstracted, refracted way, which we'll, which we'll get to in the oh, course cool. of the episode. So we'll have a little bit of a personal stuff in here, too. Uh, this has been a, a real fun one to research. Uh, Brad... We usually begin uh, every episode with the the person who's presenting asking the other person, in this case, me, mm-hmm. I will ask you, what do you know about Tennessee Williams? I, I don't know a whole lot. Um, I, I know he wrote uh, one of my favorite films. Uh, well, he wrote Streetcar Named Desire as a play that was adapted into film. And that was, I don't know if that was Marlon Brando's breakout role, but it was certainly yes. a big a yes. tent pole in his career. It made, um, it made Brando. It made Brando. Okay. Um, and, uh, and also wrote uh, the play behind one of my favorite films, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, and other than that, I don't know much about him personally. I always assumed he was from the South. I mean, his, his, his films, the, 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 the stories that, that inspired the films have a, are, are Southern in character. Um, so I always assumed he had some connection to the South and uh, that's about it. Honestly. Oh, wow. All right. Well, I've learned a lot of things about Tennessee. I knew maybe a little more than you uh, mm-hmm. because of my personal background as a, as an American playwright, you don't mm-hmm. get out of the shadow of someone like Tennessee. You sure. simply don't. Uh, 
Yeah, very interesting figure. He, <laughs> I, I forgot to mention too, we're going to have venereal disease is going to come oh, up here at some point. God, yeah, good. we haven't really we just planned the hits yet. here. Just yeah. Plan- yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we've come across it, but maybe haven't foregrounded it the way yeah. we're going to in this episode. Okay. So, so buckle up. And uh, right. I, you know, I'm going to try not to be too linear uh, with Tennessee here. Okay. We'll we'll dart around a little bit. Uh, one of one of his. Um, uh, famous lines from The Glass Menagerie, which is the play that made him, which is very autobiographical, and it's sort of about uh, himself and his sister, who will figure he- heavily here. Okay. The, the line is, the play is memory. The play is mm-hmm. memory. And so mm-hmm. with Tennessee and his work, you may... <clears throat> people people will occasionally uh, suggest that his work is... Um, Realistic. There's a lot of like realism in his plays, but it's it's it, it's this unique combination of realism and expressionism in his work, where mm. you drift in and out of memory and and this high poetic language into the sort of crashing hard realism. Uh, I think that he peaked in that sense with um, with Streetcar, but we'll get to all okay. of that. Okay. Um, cool. So yeah, uh, Thomas Lanier Williams the third. He was born in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, saying English, Welsh, and Huguenot ancestry. Uh, his mother was named Edwina, uh, and his father was named Cornelius Coffin Williams, which I think is a Ooh. funny, funny middle name, Coffin, C.C. Yeah. Williams. Um, and uh, he, I need to find the year that he was born. He was born in 1911, so we're going to place him right around, oh, I suppose the, right kind of in the, the, the middle of World War One. Uh, in in Mississippi, so let's kind of like anchor ourselves there. Um, his mother uh, was the daughter of a reverend, an Episcopal reverend. Okay. Um, so we've come from this sort of Episcopal uh, Episcopal family. You could sort of say middle class, solidly middle class. Uh, he had one sister, uh, Rose, and a brother um, whose name I think was, uh, his name escapes me offhand, but I'll, I'll come back okay. to it. Um, and one thing I should mention about Tennessee is that he's not maybe as far removed as you would think. Uh, he mm. lived into the 80s. Oh, really? So, yeah. So okay. there's something about where he peaked in the 40s and the 50s yeah. where like my brain puts him kind of in a more old timey place. Yeah, for absolutely. Yeah. So let's scrap that a little bit and try to, yeah. One thing I've encountered too with Tennessee and the media that I've been picking up about him is that it's like so much of this stuff where there's a danger um, in representing this as kind of like high culture, right? These are the Mm. great place. These were salacious uh, sexy, erotic, mm-hmm. dangerous plays. They still are. And yeah. his work, when Hollywood got it, got their hooks into it, was completely marketed with the sort of licentiousness and the, right. the ooh, the, the sort of cleavage sex. on the poster, probably. Yeah, and, well, yeah. sure. And in one of the yeah. movies, um, uh, The Rose Tattoo, which is based on one of his plays, there's a oh. scene where they go into a strip club and you can just see, what was it? I think it was called The Hayes Code. There was a code, the Hollywood code. You could just mm-hmm. imagine they probably had a representative from the church, you know, if not on the set looking at the dailies going, yeah, <laughs> you can show leg for just that much amount of time. Right, um, right, right. But even with that, he would encounter all sorts of, of trouble. There was one, there's one uh, like A&E biography of Tennessee uh, where there's a scholar who at some point talks about him being one of the first casualties of alcohol and drug use. And I'm like, 
what are you talking about? This man was <laughs> slipped into that in the 60s, in the 70s. I'm pretty sure there yeah. were plenty of cases before. Yeah. It's just a lot of like, I don't know how to say this in a nice way. When Once the academics get a hold of something like this, mm-hmm. it dries it out and you lose all the, the sex. They right. pull all the sex out of it. Um, and I want to re-inject that into this. Tennessee <laughs> okay. Williams was a sex addict. Uh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Right, right. He very, very famously, uh, you know, uh, would say that a day where he didn't end up in somebody's bed was a day wasted. <laughs> uh, so, so was he well now i gotta ask was yeah, he was he into boys or into girls yeah he was he was homosexual okay and he, okay and this is another in the art of darkness uh pantheon that we're mm-hmm. in the dark pantheon that we're creating here <laughs> yeah we're yeah. not that far away from oscar wilde not really no right i mean when was when was i'm sorry when was tennessee born again 1911 so wilde i think died in 19 the year 1900 Okay. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so we're not that far away. So the times they are a change in here and mm-hmm. uh, Tennessee, and I, I want to talk about that at length. So we'll get to it. Okay, fun. Um, but, you know, his, his body of work really uh, seems to focus, well, there are a lot of themes, but you'll hear people say, ah, streetcar is about the death of the American dream. Eh, no, it's not. They didn't even think about, the, the, the idea of the American dream didn't even really exist until 1931 yeah. when it was yeah. popularized. popularized. When some no. marketing firm came up yeah, with it, probably, some, right? Right, yeah, it was yeah. some academic or some book or something. Yeah. No, the streetcar is about the old, the legacy South uh, encountering, encountering the industrial North uh, it's about it's about a myriad of things. It's it's, it's southern gothic and it's mm. for, forbidden eros right. is at the heart right. of his stuff. Right. And a lot of the films, particularly the ones that are a little more middling, uh, mm. when you see them, they're 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 queer coded. So okay. you would go to that movie if you were hip. You would see one thing. If you're mm-hmm. a Philistine, you'd go, "Oh, that was an interesting movie." You're not seeing that these characters mm-hmm. are standing in for relationships and, and okay. that that okay. are forbidden yeah um yeah we'll get to it so okay fine. all right so yeah well, let's get into his psychology so i was going to talk about his parents um his father was an alcoholic uh shoe salesman <laughs> mm, <okay. laughs> which uh you know kind of al bundy kind of figure. well you don't want to think too much about al bundy <laughs> because he this is at a time where you could be a, a shoe sale well gee well, whiz true. i'm on the road selling right. shoes, you know yeah and he, had, he, he did eventually get promoted to um to like a manager, okay, in, which took them to to St. Louis, to the big city of St. Louis, uh, and that really affected Tennessee and uh, his life because it pulled him away from his grandparents. And once his father came into the home, it was not a good scene. His father was abusive, uh, and his mother was, uh, they say, mentally unstable, Edwina. Mm-hmm. Little, right, 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 little off-kilter right, Edwina, right, and right. Uh, extremely puritanical about sex. To the, right, so Edwina, yeah. so, to the point where dad's a drunk at home, and when he would approach Edwina for a little bit of the old, uh, mm-hmm. going back to our Kubrick episode, a little of the old in-out, in-out. Right. Uh, <laughs> she would freak out and like start running around the house to, screaming. Oh, well, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Good times. But yeah. the drama, I can, the drama of that feels like something I could see in a, in cat on a hot tin roof or, or, or something. Right. He, he is an exquisitely 
biographical playwright mm. uh, to the point where when he finally gets around to uh, writing uh, The Glass Menagerie, which would be his first big hit, uh, he's pulling directly from his and his family's mm. life in right. the tradition of uh, Eugene O'Neill, okay, I would right. say, in that case. Mm. Although one thing that, uh, that Tennessee um, himself said uh, and, and I should say there are some very, very good interviews with him later mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may even pause and play a, in fact, we will pause and play a portion of two interviews um, with him to kind of place him in time cool. and also Great. to hear his voice. Yeah. Again, he's closer to us than you might think. There's something about the way I think our public schools teach <laughs> these playwrights <laughs> that almost like puts them into a different world. You go, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, no, I mean, you, you were alive when Tennessee was alive. I'll be That's, brief. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would have, I would have, I guess if you would have, you know, sort of take a roll of the dice, what do you, what do you think? I guess I would have guessed he died in the sixties. I don't know, but well, his career did right. <laughs> See, and this is something right. we'll get to. Uh, unfortunately, okay. yeah, but he did himself no he did himself no services there. Mm. So when he was a young child, right, his brother's name was um or was Walter Walter okay. Williams, okay. Walter Dakin Williams, and then Rose Isabel Williams. Um, so his older sister and a younger brother. He was a middle. Uh, mm. well, when he was very young, um, Tennessee or Tom at the time. Uh, nearly died from a case of dip, diphtheria. Mm. Uh, what is diphtheria? Do you know? I don't really know. Actually, it's one of those that you hear about and you go, uh, what, is, "What is diphtheria?" Let's look I don't it up know real quick. Symptomatically, what it's like isn't the one that you get like pe- kids get vaccinated for now. I think. Like, uh, I would. I would hope so. I don't yeah. know. It's it's a bacterial infection. Okay. And it caused him a lot of um, trouble. And okay. obviously when he was very young and he was very needy already, a mama's boy, uh, and this exacerbated that. And okay. so what we have in Tennessee is a, an almost archetypal case of a, gosh darn it, I think my son's a queer kind of a situation. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, not to be uh, impolite yeah. about it, but yeah. I think that's pretty much how it's described. And, um, you know, his father... <laughs> was a descendant of East Tennessee pioneer stock, had a violent temper, used his fists, and he 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 thought his son was effeminate. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, Edwina, who's in this unhappy marriage, starts to focus on Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So you have a case where here's a young boy who withdraws into letters and avoids uh, what you would sort of consider to be the more traditionally masculine pursuit. So it's a recipe recipe for a tortured genius here with Tennessee. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So they, they go to live in uh, um, St. Louis. He's, he goes to high school there. Uh, they talk about in some of the, the biography, they talk about how he was tortured. Uh, it was not not a good time for an effeminate uh, lad who's interested in poetry in right. St. Louis. Right, um, I can imagine. Yeah, for sure. So, but he's starting he's starting to show an interest in high school uh, in writing, and uh, he has a short story published actually uh, in an issue of Weird Tales. Oh, really? Uh, 
Yeah, that's yeah. Kind of surprising. Which I think is fun because I was going to say streetcar. You could make a case that street, streetcar is in the uh, the Lovecraft universe. I'm joking, of course, but it's it it, it it's a horror. It's a horror. Oh yeah, story. yeah. It, it, it taps into the same emotional core for sure as horror does. The yeah. way that Lovecraft is all about uh, madness mm-hmm. and being afraid that you might go mad. Blanche mm-hmm. is a Lovecraftian yeah. character. Yeah, no, it's uh, true. Uh, she yeah. she sleeps with one of her students, is driven out of town, uh, and ends right. up in in New Orleans in this uh, tenement type situation. There's right. a, there really is an element of horror. Um, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. And so, well, and then also the what if thing, or um, I'm sorry, strange tales, right? Weird tales, yeah. Weird tales. So that kind of makes sense because the way you're describing it, which I didn't really appreciate until now, is Tennessee was doing something that was almost like a literary pulp if that makes sense mm, yeah a little yes. bit yeah you can make the poster sort of a, a of a you know a torn blouse and sort of tawdry and all of that but mm-hmm. once you actually get into it he's doing he's doing a lot more than just that yeah so he wrote a, a short story here which i i had not read but it's called the vengeance of nitocris nice. a short story he wrote it when he was 16 years old he was paid 500 dollars hey, uh, in today's pretty, money that's not yeah. bad yeah. yeah. So there you go. So he's 16 years old and that's nice. You get a little nod. You go, okay, all right, maybe, okay, maybe there's yeah. something to this writing business. I can yeah. keep doing it. Um, I should say that as we're going along here, uh, his sister Rose um, and he are very close, mm. uh, but she was diagnosed with schizophrenia <sighs> as a young woman. Uh, and so this would be a huge factor in his life. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll follow that thread as we as we go along, but we can move into his uh, his education, his higher education. So we're we're in um, you know St. Louis into the uh, the end of the twenties, the early thirties. He it's finally time for him to leave the the madhouse of his home. Uh, his mother's upstairs shrieking because uh, dad's drunk and uh, and uh, horned up. Mm-hmm. Okay, great time to leave. Uh, mm-hmm. Crazy schizophrenic sister, unstable mother, uh, and he. So he goes to the University of Missouri in Columbia, and he enrolls in journalism classes. Uh, and but he was bored with them, mm-hmm. and apparently there was some un- unrequited love with a girl. Can't imagine why she wouldn't reciprocate. Uh, strapping young young lad that he is, um, he but he's still submitting. He he joins a, a fraternity. It doesn't go well, and then he fails military training in his junior uh, year. So what year would this be about? Uh, early thirties. So okay, thirty one. Okay. So we're not World War Two time, but we're not yeah, World War Two okay. time. Yeah, and yeah. he wouldn't he wouldn't serve, uh, which is something that isn't entirely entirely clear to me, but I, I assume yeah. he fails training here and then yeah. he's probably aged out by the yeah. time it happened or no, he wasn't drafted. Yeah, right. his proclivities may have also been a factor. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is an important moment for Tennessee because uh, this is where he, well, I skipped over one thing. He saw a production at this university of Ibsen's Ghosts which is a, uh, a rather famous play of Ibsen's and that really affected him. And so he, he has it in mind. I might be a playwright after mm-hmm. seeing that, but his father pulls him from school in 31 because he fails military training. And what does his father do? This, this, this 
angry alcoholic shoe shoe salesman manager father what does he do i'm not paying for your college you, yeah. you what do you think he makes him do i uh, i don't know it's got to be some kind of like factory or work or something yeah yeah, yeah. you nailed it yep yeah. you gotta come to work at the shoe factory uh, but wait this doesn't even make any sense so he fails military training but he's going to college so it's like I, Look, I don't understand. Things were different, right? And and toughen them up, I guess. Yeah, and here's the thing. One thing that we're going to encounter a lot on Art of Darkness, and we already have, is there's some of the the figures that we're talking about have the the spoon in their mouth, right? Burroughs definitely Mm -hmm. had the spoon Mm -hmm. in his mouth. Who was living around there at the same time. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Your uh, Kavan had the spoon in his mouth. Tennessee did not have the spoon in his mouth. That's interesting. And yeah. he he came he came from a decent family here. You can tell in terms of money, but but the near the nuclear family was out. Of, they were clearly right. out of their minds. A schizophrenic yeah. sister that tends to run in the family. Yeah. Not throwing shade on it, but there it right. is. It's just the, their, uh, yeah. unstable mother. And then so, he, but he he, yeah, he didn't go to Princeton. Right. 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 He, he went to yeah University of Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so. Right. So dad pulls him and says, you're going to work at the International Shoe Company Factory. And you're a poet. Uh, and um, he would he would work all day boxing um, shoes. And um, he set a goal to write one story a week. And, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, his mother recounted that Tom would go to his room with black coffee and cigarettes and I would hear the typewriter clicking away at night in the silent house. Some mornings when I walked in to wake him for work, I would find him sprawled, fully dressed on the bed, too tired to remove his clothes. Mm. Uh, so he's approaching his 24th birthday, college dropout, and not in the Kanye, fun Kanye West. Right. College dropout, working at his dad's factory, uh, talented, a budding genius. Mm. He has a nervous breakdown. Uh, and okay, here we well, are at that time. You got to be worried that, well, maybe he has, I mean, if you have a nervous breakdown, it's not the same as schizophrenia, but that's the same age where it kicks in. Right. So there's gotta you be are, some concern there. Yep, it was his older sister who yep. has schizophrenia and this is, you are ahead of it. Uh, yep. he, for his entire life feared that he would be, uh, that he would lose his mind like his sister. Yeah. Uh, even though, the, even though he loved her a great deal, of course, uh, sure. he was afraid of it. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. I, 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 you know, I know a, uh, a family that schizophrenia runs in and, uh, the, the, a, a person I went to high school with and, uh, the father has it and one of the kids has it and you could, you know, it's been a long time since I talked to anybody, but you can feel it lurking in the family. Like it's, yeah. it's could it pop up? Because it can, it can happen, you know, it can happen, you know, anytime in your 20s. Well, you've just got to watch and wait and make sure none of them start to podcast. That's right. That's right. As soon as the podcast starts, <laughs> then you know it's time. Uh, so by the mid-30s, uh, Edwina and uh, Cece Coffin uh, have separated. And uh, because of the alcoholism, they never divorce. Well, uh, not very religious, right? She now, right. Episcopalian and, mm-hmm. and all of this. Well, so now we're in the mid thirties and Tennessee, uh, after a little hiatus from higher education, finally enrolls in, uh, at Washington university, 
he wrote a play called Me Vashya, and he uh, took fourth place in a competition, after which he proceeded to scream at his professor and stormed off campus. Scream because he didn't win? Because he didn't win. <laughs> so he yeah. knows he knows <laughs> that he deserved first place, but right. the, the professors uh, didn't agree. Right. So now we're, we're uh, two, uh, two colleges down. Uh, he promptly uh, transferred to Iowa, the University of Iowa. Okay. Um, and he did finally, finally take his, his bachelor's degree. Okay. Uh, and he, he worked on a collaborative play there. Uh, and he was quoted as saying of the theater in that experience, the laughter enchanted me. Mm-hmm. Then and there, the theater and I found each other for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. I know it's the only thing that saved my life. Mm-hmm. And this is where he adopted uh, Tennessee Williams as his professional name. Oh, okay, okay. I was kind of curious about that. So I'm just curious. So he was writing poetry and plays, and then this is, or sorry, poetry and stories, and then this was his first play. Uh, Me Vashya, I believe, was his first. So did he? Was it like plays? All plays from there out? I mean, we can get into that, I guess. Yeah, we will. Uh, I believe he wrote a novel. Uh, okay. And he he would write poetry, uh, you know, throughout his throughout okay. his life, um, but principally known as a as yeah, a major yeah, American playwright. Right. Uh, now, yeah. So there's so much I want to cover. This is I, I really enjoy doing this podcast because there's so much uh, mm. so many things that we can get into, and there's no way we're going to cover. Uh, his entire career and all the people who supported him. Uh, One of the weird little connections that I have is that there was a theater named after one of his early supporters, uh, this Texas woman named Margot Jones, uh, who boosted his career. He had a Hmm. lot of help, particularly from women throughout his career. Hmm. And there's, there are two books that I referenced for, for this podcast. I have the Wikipedia. I have some other uh, links online, but I have two books. One is by this fellow named James Grissom, which is called Follies of God, Tennessee Williams and the Women of the Fog. Uh, Hmm. And the Hmm. title there comes from Tennessee describing where his characters would come from. He had an internal theater in his mind, Hmm. which was always covered in fog, almost kind of a David Lynch, uh, image and a Lynchian type image. And uh, he would summon these women or these women would come to him. So Blanche would come to him as a character uh, out of the fog and, and he could hear their voices. I mean, he certainly was touched by genius, mm-hmm. uh, but not just the women of the fog, the, the actresses and the people who supported him. Um, this is fun. We'll get to this, this, the story of James Grissom um, a little later. Uh, James Grissom wrote Tennessee, uh, after Tennessee was uh, living back in New Orleans. I can't remember exactly what year, but later on in his mm-hmm. life. And Grissom was a young, um, I presume gay man uh, living in Baton Rouge who wanted to be a writer, uh, wrote Tennessee, sent him a couple of short stories and a picture from a beauty contest that he had won. Uh, because apparently he, he says, when you see him in interviews, you know, in the South back then, men would do beauty contests. It's like, I don't know why I sent Tennessee that picture. What's well, like, well, yeah, I think, I think you know why. <laughs> I think you know. Um, and, and four or five months later, his mother uh, knocked on his door and said, uh, there's someone claiming to be Tennessee Williams uh, who wants to speak to you. <laughs> mm, <that laughs> because he good, had sent Tennessee a, a letter uh, asking for sort of advice about being a writer. And Tennessee 
this is much later in Tennessee's life. Uh, mm -hmm. Tennessee said, well, you know, is this James Grissom? If you want to uh, hear Tennessee's voice in your, your inner ear, you can kind of imagine uh, Capote a little bit. Oh, okay. Some yeah. similarities yeah. Uh, in the sort of accent and the, the, the affect. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Tennessee called him and said, well, you know, we're going to have lunch together, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, when? Well, today, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, you know, New Orleans, you know, and well, I'm in Baton Rouge, and to which Tennessee said, "Well, then you better hurry." <laughs> <laughs> and I love these stories of uh, of famous figures who can do that and get yeah. somebody, on, you know, on the road. It, yeah, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. The other book that I have is by a fellow named uh, Lyle Leverich, and it's kind of the go-to biography of, of Tennessee Williams. Okay. up to the premiere of the glass menagerie which oh, okay. we're approaching here mm -hmm. here in this episode okay um and it's just called tom the unknown tennessee williams huh. so those are the books that i'm referring to so uh we're we're dealing right now oh this is another point i wanted to make so this is one of the things that wikipedia kind of gets wrong he definitely um was influenced by other playwrights, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you can make the case that uh, Streetcar is Streetcar is very similar to The Cherry Orchard. If you know Chekhov and The Cherry Orchard, there are similarities. Huh. You lose okay. it. It's an estate that's been lost or is in the process of being yeah. lost. There's all of this class tension. Yeah, uh, Cherry Orchard is kind of a Southern Gothic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. A little sure. bit. Yeah. yeah okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Interesting. He, he's definitely... Um, influenced by literary figures mm -hmm. uh his favorite writer or one of his favorite writers was hart crane mm -hmm. he really uh admired hart crane to the point where in some of the uh the later um interviews that he did he he claimed he wanted to be buried at sea like hart crane uh <laughs> which Aww. is pretty funny yeah. i don't know much about hart crane uh other than that he was me neither but i i know that uh, he you know, getting an English degree. He was a name that was sort of at the periphery. It felt like all the time, but I never actually got into him either. Yeah. Well, this is a, this is a road we should go down. Yeah. Hart yeah. Crane, uh, quite a big deal. Homosexual. I mean, I'm just reading would take a little aside here. Crane yeah. visited Mexico in 31, 32 on a Guggenheim fellowship and his drinking continued. As he <laughs> suffered from bouts of alternating depression and elation. When yeah. Peggy Cowley, wife of his friend, Malcolm Cowley agreed to a divorce. She joined Crane. As far as is known, she was his only heterosexual partner. So another yeah. future hmm. episode of Art of Darkness. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, we just, yeah. just find an author and type in the word alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a subject. That's um, right. So we're, we're arriving to, to Tennessee becoming Tennessee. And I think, I think now would be a good point for me to read a quote from him mm -hmm. uh, as we move toward the 40s. Let me find one of the quotes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So this is quite good. Um, Nobody sees anybody truly, but all through the flaws of their own egos. That is the way we all see each other in life. Vanity, fear, desire, competition, all such distortions within our own egos condition our vision of those in relation to us. And to those distortions to our own egos, the corresponding distortions in the egos of others. 
Uh, and you see how, uh, sorry, sorry, add to those distortions to our own egos, the corresponding distortions in the egos of others, and you see how cloudy the glass must become through which we look at each other. That's how it is in all living relationships, except when there is that rare case of two people who love intensely enough to burn through all those layers of opacity mm. and see each other's naked hearts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have a in Tennessee, you have a pretty keen observer of the human yeah. scene. Yeah, and then uh, under yeah, deep psychological understanding, and also a little bit, also a kind of romantic idealist, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I would yeah. say. Well, so we're we're in the the late thirties. He's working some menial jobs. Uh, he was a caretaker at a chicken ranch in Laguna Beach, California. At some point, okay. a little uh, interlude That's there. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Audrey Wood picks him up as a client, and she's this major mid-century agent. Uh, he was awarded a thousand-dollar grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, he wrote a play called Battle of Angels. It was his early work, Juvenalia, mm -hmm. uh, that was produced in Boston in 1940. It wasn't well received, but hey, you know, keep trying. Sure. Uh, and he took the money from the Rockefeller Fund and he did what every respectable young man from a, a good legacy family in the South does. He moved to New Orleans. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he moved in 39. Uh, apparently, he went to write for the Works Progress Administration, um, the hmm. federal program that Roosevelt uh, yeah, okay. began. And he went to live in the French Quarter. Mm. And so now, uh, Tennessee has arrived uh, at the place where he's, he's, he's exploring um, the darker side of life, let's say, sure. in, terms of, in terms of drugs and partying. And then he also discovers his, his sexuality, um, um, which is decidedly uh, gay. Yeah. Um, one of the interviews we're going to listen to later, uh, he was always kind of out uh, he never really hit it. Like his family knew everybody kind of knew, but you didn't really talk about it. Yeah. But on one of these talk shows, he, he was drunk. Um, and the host was kind of pressing him and, and giving him a, you know, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a working over yeah. and Tennessee kind of smirks and, and says, but I've covered the waterfront. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it, it it's a pretty great moment so nice. i wanted to um to actually get to something from one of the books uh from that period so let me find what i was looking for yeah I, you know i should say as i'm looking um uh for that just how you owe it to yourself if you if you haven't seen these movies particularly mm. streetcar but yeah. also also cat yeah uh, they're just essential and right. there's there's no greater film than Streetcar. No, it's, not really. It's incredible. Yeah, you don't um, get much better. You just get different. Yeah, exactly. So he's in he's in New New Orleans in the early '40s, and uh, with a little bit of money, but a not not a lot of money. And uh, so this is an interesting. Um, so this is uh, Saturday, October 11th, I think 41, and he and he writes. One of those queer lost mornings, love life resumed with a vengeance last night. Two in the night, one in the morning. Enjoyed it, the first couple, then a bit sordid. Ah, well, I guess it comes under the heading of fair entertainment. The Blue Devils have sort of squatted dumbly at the foot of the stairs, as it were. 
Love is what makes it still seem nice after the orgasm. Then is when sex becomes art after the orgasm. One must be an artist to keep it from falling to pieces uglily. Up to then, it is simply craftsmanship and of a pretty crude and simple kind. It is also art, of course, when you first meet the person, selecting the attitude and sticking to it. Mm. So he's uh, he's in poverty down here. So yeah. having gone from check to check, now it's hand to mouth. And he's, yeah. he's really living. This is not a LARP. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a, a fellow who's... Uh, fairly estranged from his his father. Right. I don't think his he's not getting a trust fund check. He's right, not getting. Yeah, his dad's not putting a deposit down on his apartment. Yeah, the yeah. The, the stuff that he, uh, yeah, that he writes about the sort of uh, the business in streetcar is lived. He mm-hmm. didn't uh, go down there as a joke. Right. Um, yeah. So this is so a little bit more here. You know, he's saying. Difficulties financial, blue devils dispersed, I am flat broke, stony, literally, not one cent. Bummed a couple of cigarettes off a queen at jeans, guess I'll have to sell a suit tomorrow. Hate to, but I do love to eat, and one must have beer money on Saturday night in the quarter. Rent overdue, three or four days. The Lawrence play goes nicely. I think, well, let's hope a gift arrives in the mail. Oh, and then he would sign his letters, en avant, you know, looking forward. En avant, the French. What does that mean? Uh, looking forward. Oh, okay, okay. I, I believe, right. you know, in, in front, something okay. like that. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. So, I mean, he's, I'm not done with this period. I just yeah. love this stuff. Yeah. Saturday, I wake up with no money for breakfast and the landlady right outside my door. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Midnight, Bill loaned me $5. God bless him. I still have my good suit. Had a pretty satisfactory, quote, roll in the hay this evening. Then a long, dull round of the gay places to kill time. I have nothing to say to these people after I've been to bed with one of them. Then it all seems utterly vacuous. I prefer to just sit and look at Bill and say nothing. I think Bill uh, must have been one of his lovers. Mm. Um, now, this, this is where it gets a little rough down in uh, the Big Easy. Okay. Uh, come Sunday morning, he discovered... I have crabs again and can't even afford to buy the personal insecticide. Oh, no. Oh, man. <laughs> Literally a laus- lousy writer. That's me, a lousy guy. <laughs> Want excitement? Move, Florida, no, Taos, wish I could. New York, maybe soon, but I am probably better off here, relatively speaking. I'm satisfied and a life is relatively pleasant. And there is Bill, maybe the nicest guy I've ever known. Moscow mm. is being sieged. A footnote to all this <laughs> trivial chatter. Typical bitch, Tennessee, almost 10. Now, here's the I problem. I love the staccato style of this. The, yeah. like, it's got like a little bit of like jazz almost mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, so then what, I, when, what ends up happening here is that, well, here we go. I'll read it. Monday, very, very blue. A charming little incident climaxed an already miserably, miserable evening. So you can see he has this sort of queeny sense of drama, doesn't he? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The lover of Saturday night, Saturday night stopped me and said, Say, do you know you have crabs? You gave them to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So we're dealing with, you know, I mean, listen to this. Uh, later, drank a pitcher of water to relieve my hunger. Found a few grapes left in bottom of sack. Two were Oof. eatable. When hunger drives a man to a crime, it should not be considered a crime except against the man who committed it. Later, can't sleep. 
empty stomach and quote unquote crabs. Oh. <laughs> so he, he had his Bukowski moment. Yeah, uh, that, definitely. He was, yeah, he was at the bottom. Wow. Uh, okay. For sure. So we're in the 40s, uh, and he's in New Orleans. He has um, uh, uh, the a little bit of money. He has the agent, and he he does finally get the call uh, to um, to Hollywood, mm-hmm. and that the the timing here gets a little bit muddy. Um, I'm trying to. Uh, get it exact because so, I want to get it this right. Was, yeah, go ahead. This is based on, so he'd had a f- handful of plays, one or more plays produced when he was living in New Orleans? Um, uh, no, he's, this is a dry period. Oh, yeah, I this see. Is dry okay. So he's, okay. he's writing, he's working on setting up his, setting up okay. his plays. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So he, he has Audrey Wood uh, in his corner and he, yeah, here it is. So he finally gets from the Rockefeller grant, which is how it often is, right? Mm-hmm. Gets him enough attention from Hollywood that, that Audrey Wood gets him a six month contract at MGM. Oh, okay, nice. All right, yeah, yeah. so he gets, he gets the call, he goes out to Hollywood and there's all of this funny uh, little, little, these letters from him where he's saying, how wonderful money is. <laughs> and there, there are, and he was very, he was very handsome in his way, right? Oh, was so he? Okay. There are pictures yeah. of him, you know, on, in Santa Monica, on the beach, mm-hmm. uh, golden tan, just living large. Nice. Uh, do it just writing for the industry, getting mm-hmm. his bank account uh, filled up mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, who can blame him? So he's out yeah. in Hollywood doing that. And that's where he writes uh, the short story um, that, uh, that, that would eventually become uh, The Glass Menagerie. Now, uh, this, is, this is a really, really important period for him. Um, he... Yeah, he, the, the short story, I believe, was called The Gentleman Caller. MGM didn't want it, uh, but eventually it would be made into a play, but not before he would return to New York City to pursue the theater, leaving, leaving Hollywood bef- behind. So he had his oh, contract. Really? He did what he had to do in, in Hollywood. He got his tan, mm-hmm. uh, and then he got came. A bit, yeah. Got a little bit of scratch. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, got, got some scratch together, then moved to New York City. Now, if we were writing this as a biopic, this would be uh, the first dark night of the soul. Mm. We're approaching uh, bottom here for Tennessee before, before the breakout. And so I want to read again from the, from the Tom book about his period in New York City uh, in 42-43. So we have the war uh, in the background. Mm-hmm. This is a struggling Southern playwright in New York City. Sure, he has an agent. He's had a, he's had a show on, um, but he hasn't had a hit by any means. Uh, he's writing poetry. And, and also, Tennessee Williams was a sex addict. Right. Uh, this is my, this is my, this is my contribution to the understanding. Now, you know, yeah. you say sex addict. He was a very busy little boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, was, I mean. Yeah. The one thing you said, three within a 24-hour period, that's, that's yeah. a lot. 
Yeah, he covered the waterfront, as, as he said yeah, himself. Yeah. And more power to him. But this is, again, when, you know, when, when all of the biography, all the biographies and all the polite society and the academic stuff will just sort of skirt around this. I'm like, no, yeah. this guy was out there. He was right. randy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's the middle of January in, in uh, New York City. And uh, he was still cruising like mad mm. when, once again, he ran, ran afoul of what is called rough trade. Mm. Late Thursday night. This is his letter or uh, something he wrote, his diary. Probably the most shocking experience I've ever had with another human being was last night when my trade turned dirt. No physical violence resulted. I was insulted, threatened, bullied, and robbed of about $1.50 and a cigarette lighter. All my papers were rooted through and the pitiless, horrifying intimidation was carried on for about an hour. I was Mm. powerless. I could not ask for help. There was only me and him, a big guy. Well... I kept my head and I not, did not get panicky at any moment or at any point, though I expected certainly to be beaten. I didn't even tremble. I talked gently and reasonably in answer to all the horrible abuse. Somehow the very helplessness and apparent hopelessness of the situation pre- uh, prevented much fright. I stayed in the room while he was threatening and searching because my manuscripts were there and I feared he, feared he might try to confiscate or destroy them. In that event, I would have fought, called for help, anything. He finally despaired of finding any portable property of value and left with the threat that any time he saw me, he would kill me. I felt sick and disgusted. I think that is the end of my traffic with, with such characters. Oh, and I want to get away from here and lead a clean, simple, antiseptic life. Taos, the oh. desert, and the mountains. Oof. So yeah. you can see where his experience in the factory back in St. Louis and a mm-hmm. character there who is a uh, Kowalski type, uh, his Stanley Kowalski working man type. Yeah. And then these experiences of violence in New York city, you can see how this is all um, twirling around in his, in his genius brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the year um, that his sister Rose, uh, her, she, she had already been institutionalized, but her, condition was worsening mm-hmm. uh, to the degree where she had to get a lobotomy. Uh, so they did a prefrontal, whatever it is, a, a lobotomy. Um, I want to make sure I get it right. Um, so have you, have you ever heard of the stories of the guys who sort of invented and popularized, popularized l- lobotomy? <laughs> Mr. L- Mr. Lobot? Lobot? Yeah, <laughs> no, Lobot. I don't. I, we we oh. should do an episode about him. Well, yeah. check out. There's a, there's a great uh, episode. Oh, what is that podcast? Anyway, there, you can find out a lot of information. He was the creepiest, weirdest person, and I, can, I, I struggle to understand that people even bought what he was selling, honestly. Look, Brad, you just have to trust, uh, trust the science. Trust the science. Trust yeah. the science. All you got to do, we just, we just mm-hmm. go in there, we cut mm-hmm. your brain in half, mm-hmm. and you're fine after that. Yeah. No, you'll just be, you're not going to disturb anybody anymore. Yeah. We'll yeah. just put you back in it the was, room. It was yeah. performed on a lot of recalcitrant housewives at first. Fun. Fun. Yeah, we love that. Trust the science, everyone. Uh, so, great. Well, this affected uh, Tom, Tennessee. Um, sure quite a great deal. And, uh, he, he wrote, uh, a poem, uh, about it, which I'm going to find about, about her being about her lobotomy. So he's in New York city being mugged by rough trade, having his 
Yeah. You know. And having his papers dug through. Um, and uh, let me find it. So, yeah, right. Although once again, without funds, Tom did stay on and was startled by a letter dated January 20th from home, from Edwina. Now that it's over, she wrote, I can tell you about Rose. So they write him after it's happened. Who has successfully come through a head operation. A letter from Dr. Hochter and the surgeon said yesterday that she shows marked improvement and has cooperated through it all. I shall be permitted to visit her Sunday. And then he wrote back, I did not at all understand the news about Rose. What kind of operation was it and what was it for? Mm. Finally, he asked, please let me know exactly what was done with Rose. Mm. Um, and uh, so it was a, a bilateral prefrontal lobotomy had been performed. Yeah. Um, pretty pretty uh, difficult. So he wrote a poem. Uh, Tom's only reference to the news about his sister was set down in another journal, a spiral notebook. Grand God be with you, a cord breaking, 1,000 miles away, rose, her head cut open, a knife thrust in her brain, me here smoking, my father mean as a devil, snoring 1,000 miles away. So not a good time. Uh, So he's in New York City. Uh, He's he's trying to get, um, get going in the theater. It is, it is worth saying, uh, you know, he did finally see her. I think he, he, I think he saw her that year. And he, he did write, and I think, I don't know how much of this was cope. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote, we drove out to see my sister yesterday and found the operation, because I believe she was moved to upstate New York. Oh, I think okay. that's what happened, yeah. And uh, he, he would, once he came into money, which is coming, mm-hmm. uh, he, he looked after her and cared for her oh. his entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We drove out to see my sister yesterday and found the operation on the brain had accomplished something quite amazing. The madness is still present. That is certain of the delusions, but they have now become entirely consistent and coherent. So the lobotomy makes your madness coherent. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even sure if that's better. Yeah, right. She is full of vitality and her, her perceptions and responses seemed almost more than normally acute. All of her old wit and mischief was in evidence and she was having great fun at the expense of the nurses and inmates. She told me they were mentally lazy, interested only in menial accomplishments. (laughs) She herself is reading 19th century history and is particularly fascinated by Victor Hugo. Before the operation, she was unable to read at all and was interested in nothing. So, Mm. right. I hope that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. He would go on to say that, uh, to me, mental therapy is the most intriguing work. And if I could make a fresh start, I'd take that up instead of writing, which is funny because his work has all of the, all of the qualities of psychology and uh, these deep characters. When, um, um, oh, the name of the play right now escapes me. Uh, it, I'll have to look it up. But when, um, when Streetcar uh, premiered, a very famous playwright came to him. It might have been Horton Foote. Mm-hmm. Um, came to him and said, Blanche is too, uh, too complex a character for the theater. <laughs> to which Tennessee said, but, but uh, uh, 
people are complex. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Too complex for the theater. Thornton Wilder. It was Thornton Wilder Thornton who Wilder. said that to him, I okay. think. Uh, you know how these things are. You start gathering all of these little yeah, uh, these yeah, little yeah. moments. You got the pieces, you know? but, yeah. yeah, but it was, uh, yeah, so interesting. So, I mean, his sister's had a lobotomy. Uh, he's, he's suffered as much as really anybody's going to suffer. Uh, mm-hmm. He's gone through a lot, the troubled home, the homosexuality in a time where, of course, that mm-hmm. puts you at odds with all of uh, mainstream society, all of society. Untreatable mm-hmm. case of crabs. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Which he shared. He's been mugged right. by, uh, by right. uh, you know, his fellow, uh, by, yeah. by uh, somebody. Um, yeah. So just not good. But yeah. it's finally time um, to develop the glass menagerie. Mm. And this, is, this mm. comes from, and I got the title wrong earlier, the 1943 short story, Portrait of a, of a Girl in Glass. Oh, okay. And do you know the glass menagerie? I don't. Oh, I mean, that name is, it's, it's such a strong title. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know any, I don't know anything oh, about it. Oh, you really, you should know it. It's his first mm-hmm. major play. Uh, it's the thing that put him on the map. And there's a very uh, fine film version of it. Uh, and there's actually a more modern film version of it. I think it was made in the 80s with John Malkovich. Uh, oh. And it's, it's highly biographical. It's about um, an aging Southern belle who's, uh, husband has abandoned her and she's trying to marry off her, her daughter who is um, somehow crippled. Mm. And it's about the, and then there's a character called Tom uh, mm. who has to work at a terrible factory. Uh, and it's about, oh, wow, yeah. yeah. So it's highly autobiographical. Um, and uh, it premiered in Chicago uh, and now we're finally on the map and I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the, the Tom book to sort of describe what happened when he, um, when he had his success in Chicago with this play, you really should see the film version of it. It's worth oh, yeah, seeing. I would check that out. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me find. Yeah. It's really worth it. Um, it's the first of kind of like it, of his stuff. I would say watch menagerie, watch streetcar, and watch Cat, and you're probably in good shape. I'll talk about some of the other ones because I think they're interesting. Yeah. Um, at the end, so this is about the opening night in Chicago. Um, oh, wait, no, no, that's not. I'm, I'm, getting, uh, I'm getting out of a turn here. I'll come back to that one second. So we're in Chicago, and I think this is quite funny. Um, oh, I'm not finding it, but that's fine. I'll, I'll ad-lib it. He, so he's starting to su- succeed in Chicago, uh, with the play, he has a, a, a hit in Chicago, which is not a hit yeah. in New York City, right? No. You need the New York City um, yeah. success. But it starts, to be, uh, it starts to become a problem because now everybody wants a piece of him and everybody wants to sleep with him. Oh, um, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. What a and problem so, right. to have. Well, so I, I, I'm trying mm-hmm. to take us on this voyage from the guy who's getting mugged. Mm-hmm. Um, here it is. I found the passage. Um, As the author of a hit play, Tom had found a remedy for ready sex that also worked mighty quick. Suddenly he was being approached by opportunists whose interest in sex often included a desire for other favors that only influence and a surfeit of cash could provide. Mm -hmm. Tom enjoyed casual, often anonymous sex, and if money was a condition, that was fine with him. Particularly if the other party needed to be paid as an excuse for doing what comes unnaturally to the hustler. 
Well, he didn't object to paying for a one-night stand. From this point on, Tom would be darkly suspicious uh, in trying to distinguish between an extended hand of friendship and a sweaty palm. Mm. So he talked about, from here on out, from the, from the New York moment that's coming, the catastrophe of success. Mm. So this is not, this is, again, not somebody who comes from kind of easy money, high living. Uh, this is somebody who came from not... Yeah. Not the gutter, but he he visited the gutter. Yeah. Well, this is we saw this in the Rod Sterling episode too, right? Sort of middle class guy comes into all this money and success, and half of his work is about how success is, you know, an albatross around your neck. You know. Absolutely. Yes. And by the time uh, Tennessee writes Cat, he is interrogating alcoholism, obviously, and that comes from his own. Uh, the, one of the psychological theories about Tennessee is that his sister's lobotomy and her institutionalization really affected him and was, was key to his kind of descent. Uh, and then finally, as his career started to wane coupled with, mm -hmm. there's a way, there's a way that if it's someone you care, care about and, and, and hopefully her lobotomy had this effect and she was, you know, reasonably happy or whatever, but there's a way that if they're deeply mentally suffering, that's almost worse than them dying. You know, mm-hmm. there's no way out. They can't yeah. enjoy life. They're kind of gone. Like, yeah. Well, and that's what the glass menagerie is mm-hmm. about is this pain of, of this youth fading away into this endless repetition of a loveless life of mm-hmm. a life without passion, mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of hopelessness of that. That's what, yeah. that's, a, that's a theme in Streetcar too. What is, mm-hmm. what is left for Blanche at the end of Streetcar but the madhouse? Right, right, right. And, and that's, that's the ending of that, that play after, yeah. after Stanley rapes her, right. uh, which was something that was removed from the film but su- very, very heavily suggested. suggested yeah. yeah, but in this case, we're still with uh, Tom, Tennessee, uh, and they take, they take, uh, <clears throat> menagerie to New York and I'm going to read about what happened. Um, in the final tableau of the play with Tom departed, Amanda, his, um, yeah, Amanda hovers protectively over a broken, deeply dispirited Laura, symbolizing what Tennessee Williams saw in his own mother. Now that we cannot hear the mother's speech, Her silliness is gone, and she has dignity and tragic beauty. At the end, the audience roared its approval. There were 24 curtain calls. As Lorette took her bows, tears streaked down her cheeks, and she smiled somewhat tentatively while she held out the pleated frills of her worn blue party dress and curtsied. Her daughter said that she had the look of a great ruin of a child gazing timorously upon the world she found to be infinitely pleasing. At length, there were shouts of author, author. Eddie Dowling came down to the stage, uh, edge of the stage and beckoned Tom to come forward and take his place with the company. The young man who rose from the fourth row, his hair in a crew cut, his suit button missing, looked more like a junior in college than an eminent playwright. Standing in the aisle, he turned toward the stage and made a deep bow to the actors, his posterior in full view of the audience. And that's sort of, that's the moment that's cool. he became Tennessee. That's Williams. cool, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bowing to the, uh, the actors is quite, quite cool. Yeah. yeah, there was another uh, little bit um, uh, about his parents that I wanted to get to before we kind of move into the middle act of his life. Mm-hmm. 
because um, we have to get to Streetcar uh, oh, yeah. before we listen to the first clip of him, because the first clip of him is him coming back from Europe and he's on a boat, you know, and he's like, oh, I was in it, it was in Italy. And, you he's, know, a, I was co- to- he's a cocksure man at this point. Well, point, yeah, right? I mean, he's, he's yeah. definitely, I mean, you, we are talking Elvis levels of fame here. Oh, yeah. No, nope. he was, mm-hmm. yeah, he was extremely, highest levels of success, right? Yes. Basically, yeah, by the time a, for a writer. Car, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me find this. Um, oh, this is a, this is coming later. I want to find this. This is from the, the James Grissom, uh, the great James, uh, James Grissom book um, about Tennessee. And this is about his parents. This is uh, Tennessee talking about his father, um, whose respect he finally did earn, mm. uh, I should say, uh, in one of the interviews. The moment his father kind of grudgingly gave him respect was when they had to add a seat on the aisle for him. Nice. Because the, yeah, that's a good feeling, man. Yeah. You get, yeah. 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 All right, dad. How do you like yeah. me now? Yeah. But here's what Tennessee said. <laughs> And one day he was gone, Ten said, and I hated him for that too. I hated him for hitting me and hating me and forcing me to become something other than what I was. But I came in time to see that he was absolutely my father, just as only Edwina could be my mother. I am their son in every way, and my father is the dreamer, the inconsistent, impossible, wandering poet that I have become. I dream as my mother did, but my mother had no movement in her. There was no advancement within her. Her dreams were internal and suppressed by rage fueled by denial. My father, however, took action and his dreams were in his feet and he moved away from a situation he could no longer handle. I took my thoughts and my dreams and put them into words that made their way to paper and he took to the streets. He got away. He navigated in the truest sense of the word and I came in my way to understand him and love him. God. He saw people, man. Oh, like, yeah, that's a he's got a profound, profound insight into people. He understood people, and if you watch nothing but streetcar, yeah. the the nuance and the elegance of the characters in terms yeah. of their construction and what motivates them, every scene is this completely taut mm-hmm. um, and incredible uh, scene. This is a good point for me to read something else from the Follies book because, um, well, there's an interview or like a, I think it was like a London production of it that uh, Jessica Lang was in oh, with okay. Christian Slater and some other, um, oh, recently, John C. Yeah. Riley, yeah. yeah. And they're talking about what it's like to be in it. And they're talking about the metaphor. I think it was Jessica Lang who was talking about the metaphor of, of Streetcar, about what it's like to play it. And it has the feeling of you're, you are getting on a streetcar. It is going one place and mm-hmm. only one place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets there every night, right? Right. Um, but here's something he, he wrote. Um, I have always felt as if I traveled through life on one train while on an alternate track, an alternate train of my own creation moved along with me. This alternate train followed me through my life and still does, but it is populated with those people I might wish to know or to be, and it stops at those destinations I might have preferred over the itinerary fate and folly have dealt me. So many of the women I have known and admired and feared and ridiculed have had similar travel arrangements. 
I used to think as I held on to my strap on the train, I did not choose that if I hoped enough, dreamed enough, I might make the move to that other train. In living my life in this foolish way, I came to realize that every encounter in my life and therefore in my plays had at its core a feverish desire, a longing, perhaps a futile one, almost always a futile one, as I think on it. But I came mm. to see that this desire is nothing more than prayer, true prayer. When mm. I fell to the depths and sought help from the religious, they sought to teach me the art of prayer, and I dutifully followed along, eager to learn and to be saved. Then I saw that what they most envied, most desired, was that energetic and stupidly hopeful desire I had manifested, eyes closed on that damn train of mine. Mm. He would, uh, at some juncture here, he uh, in, down in Key West, be, be baptized um, uh, Catholic, but he sort of claimed never to, never to take it too seriously. <laughs> man, half the people we do on this show end up being Catholics. Yeah, so, man. I, you know, why don't you, I went to mass today. Why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't all y'all just cut to the chase? That's <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, right. So, yeah. Well, so I want to get to streetcar, um, to say it's iconic is, is an understatement. So when Menagerie, Menagerie is a success as a play. Yes. When does it become, when does it come out as a film? It it was a success in a play at 45, I think you said as a play. Yeah, he was, uh, it was 47. 47. Um, Okay. Yeah. Four actually, wait, uh, 44 rather. I take it back. Okay. Um, and that that won the Critics Circle Award. Didn't win okay. the Pulitzer. Um, Wait, it did or it did not. Oh, it okay. didn't. Um, yeah. But but Streetcar eventually would. Yeah. Um, I want to see when the film version came out because I want to. Yeah, that's what right I'm kind of curious because that seems like he that would be kind of when he enters pop culture uh, consciousness a little bit. I yeah, I I wonder what I the reason I want to get it right is that. Um, Right. It was, that came out in 1950. Okay. Menagerie w- was a, a 44 play, 1944 play mm-hmm. um, that premiered on Broadway. It's, it's important we get these dates right, but it all yeah, starts to so. happen like hot and fast right now. Nice. Premiered in Chicago in 44, Drama Critics Circle Award in 45, Broadway 1945. Nice. Um, now, we're getting on to Streetcar, uh, which I want to um, get to, but it's important we don't um, write, right. So the film for Streetcar came out a year after Menagerie. So it came okay. out in 51, um, premiered on Broadway uh, on, in uh, 1947. Um, at, it's at this point that Tennessee meets um, his kind of one uh, lover. So let mm-hmm. me uh, make sure that I get this right. So, because their meeting is quite funny. So Frank Merlo, who's a Navy veteran, right? Again, we're I'm covering the waterfront here, Tennessee. Um, uh, <laughs> Maybe that show that might be show title. Must be run into something in the Navy. Uh, you know, yeah. covering the waterfront. Yeah, covering the waterfront. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's actually there's actually a title, and I don't like to come preconceived to this, yeah. but I'll come to it later. Um, but yeah, yeah, covering the waterfront with Tennessee Williams is a good one. <laughs> well, so they met in they met in um, uh, Provincetown, uh, okay. Massachusetts, in forty seven, 
and they spent a night together on the beach uh, mm. making love. And it's very romantic. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Man. You get a little, get a little sand in your craw there. Yeah. Um, well, so he comes back to New York. Streetcar premieres uh, is a sensation. Uh, makes Brando a star. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wins him the Pulitzer Prize. And in early autumn, and I love this story, of 48, Tennessee accidentally runs into Merlo, uh, who's an actor, by the way, um, mm. in New York City, like in a, del- in a deli. And then by October, they've moved in together. Nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, nice. And so, you know, he had a string of uh, homosexual uh, relationships prior to this. And I mean, relationships, not uh, random hookups. Okay. Um, but he really fell in love with, with Frank. Um, mm-hmm. And... Merlo helped to begin to wean him off drugs and, oh, and really? casual sex. Yeah. So what was it? You know, well, later on, I'm assuming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, so uh, let's see here. Um, well, you know what? This is a good point to to listen to the first uh, clip that I want to yeah. share with you, Brad. Yeah. This I is Tennessee. After he comes back from Europe, he's being interviewed on a cruise ship, uh, and he has he has the world by the short hairs. At this nice. Point. So I'm going to send it to you in the chat. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. We're just in time right now to catch Tennessee Williams, the very well-known American playwright. <laughs> Hi, Tennessee. Uh, I wonder if I could chat a little bit with you. I don't know too much about this current trip, but usually you're going to Italy, uh, and you seem to like that area over there for writing. Is this going to be a writing trip? Yes, I expect to combine writing with uh, traveling this time, as usual. I remember the last time we talked to you, Tennessee, you were over there to uh, try and get that fabulous Italian star, let's see... Anna Magnani. Anna Magnani, that's right, to uh, come to New York and do Rose Tattoo. Yes, well, I didn't succeed in getting her. You know, I bet she's doggone sorry now because Rose Rose Tattoo had a nice run and, you know, it's been a well-received play. It's probably going to tour all over the United States, eventually be made into a movie. Do you have any plans along those lines? Yes, well, uh, eventually there will be a film. Right now I'm interested chiefly in getting and lining up uh, European productions for it. We have contracts for productions in Scandinavia and Denmark, uh, uh, Norway and Sweden, and uh, uh, there's a uh, production plan for England and for Italy. You know, almost every one of your plays has been internationally accepted. That is, it's played, you know, in Europe and the States and, and has done reasonably equally well in, in both places. Yes, that's true. Is there any uh, <laughs> special reason for that in the writing of them? I mean, when you originally write them, do you slant them that way? Well, there's a tremendous uh, interest now in American uh, drama. I think the uh, war put a, uh, a crimp on uh, the European theater, and right now uh, it's being fed uh, predominantly, that is, outside of England, it's being fed predominantly by American theater. Of course, it's going to revive again soon as social conditions over there become more settled, I think. So you don't come from Tennessee, do you? No, I come from Mississippi. Mississippi? Well, yeah. how did they happen to, uh, put that handle on you of Tennessee? I put it on myself. <laughs> that was your own idea. It was my own idea because my father's family were Tennesseans, yes. When you, when you start to write a play, what do you uh, sort of get to first? The general story outline or the uh, characters involved or the setting? What do you look for first? I'm always a little uh, confused by that question because I don't quite remember 
usually my long plays grow out of short plays, and usually the short plays grow out of short stories. In other words, and then the ideas yeah, probably come first, the characters second, locale third. I, I'm not sure whether it's the character that comes first. Certainly it's the character that's most important to me, more important to me than the story. I find it very difficult to write in a place like New York City as compared to, say, the leisure of Lake Como or Lake Maggiore or a place like that. Yes, I find New York the most difficult place to work. Certainly any place where you have more leisure, like Rome or Lake Como, as you mentioned, or... Uh, uh, the uh, mountains of Austria are much better for writing. Bob Sherwood once told me that the proximity of the telephone was his greatest problem in writing. I find that to be, <laughs> yes, because I can't resist answering it. <laughs> and the friends keep calling. Yeah. Tennessee, thanks an awful lot for chatting with us. It's certainly nice to meet you again. We seem to have you quite a bit on the ships, but then you, being right. a writer, you have to be a veteran traveler. That's have right. a good trip this Thank time. You. Right, bye. And so, friends, we come to the end of your Ship's Reporter program for today. Ship's Reporter is produced on film by the National Television Guild and directed by Chick Vincent. Until next time, then, this is Jack Mangan, your Ship's Reporter, wishing you and yours the smoothest and smooth sailing. Wishing you the smoothest of smooth sailing. <laughs> that's right. Ah, when yeah, men wore a... hats. Yeah, that's right. That, that's right. That was a very... Uh... There's a very 50s kind of vibe to it for sure. But th there is there was a couple notes in there that I, I quite liked. I mean, one is, I guess I didn't know what Tennessee Williams looked like. I, I saw in the tw uh, in tweeting ahead of this, I sent out a couple uh, Dick, uh, Dick Cavett interviews. Yep. And that, that's much later. That's like 15 years after this or 20 years after this. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I didn't know what he looked like and I was sort of surprised by it, but I, I, I don't know what I expected him to look like. Um, yeah, he's got that great wit. He's got that great, that great Southern pace. Um, and a real, that is what a Southern accent sounds like. Yes. A real one. Yeah. Genteel, yeah, absolutely. nice and soft. Not, right. not going to try right. to fake it. Right. Nice and, twang. Yeah, there's a, we, in America, we have this weird bias against, I feel like there's a, this strange bias against the Southern accent the, and, and, you know, I think there's some people who think of it as sort of stupid or something like that. But I've always thought it has, it seems to come with this, like, uh, what's the term? Uh, Savoir-faire, like knowing what to say, wit, like, you know, having a sort of sly remark in response to everything. Like, where did you, where, how did they put that handle on you of Tennessee? Well, I put it on myself. Yeah, a little bon mot, <laughs> right. a little yeah. nice little dig yeah. and everything's, everything's layered in three or four levels of meaning at all moments, R right. which is right. perfect for the playwright because that's yeah. exactly yeah. what you want from your play. Yeah. You don't want to know yeah, quite which way it's called a play for a reason, right? Right, like, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, conversation should feel a little bit like a sword fight, in a, mm -hmm. but in mm -hmm. a fun way, nobody's going to get an eye. I poked yeah, out, but yeah, we're yeah. we're having fun here. Yeah, a uh, little winking kind of nod. Yeah, uh, so to that, the that, was, that was great. Yeah, well, so that's a that's a great moment to just talk about Tennessee on the top of the world. I'm king of the world. Uh, from being mugged in his squalorous New yeah. York tenement flat. You know, to, what's funny yeah. is when when the interviewer said something about like all of all of your plays have international appeal. I noticed, and maybe I was just reading too much into it because now I'm like in on his story. But I noticed there was like a moment in in Tennessee's eyes that were like, oh, they haven't all been international. 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. you don't yeah. know. Oh, yeah. You what, don't know about the stinkers and the duds right. and the right, right for right. sure. Rejection. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's so true. I mean, and I, I don't know exactly how many plays he wrote, but it was into the dozens. And of course, okay. you only know the name of three or four. Right. Right. And yeah. if you can write two plays, one play on the level of streetcar, you've, oh, gosh. you've yeah. made more of a dent in this world than. Most people ever. Will. Most of yeah, most uh, of the tech bros in Silicon Valley. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and that that's where the transmission cut out. Uh, I think now would be a, a good moment for another quote. Um, he he wrote this in the Paris Review, I assume, an interview. Um, when I write, I don't aim to shock people, and I'm surprised when I do. But I don't think that anything that occurs in life should be omitted from art though the artist should present it in a fashion that is artistic and not ugly. I set out to tell the truth, and sometimes the truth is shocking. Mm-hmm. There's such a wisdom to that, because if you really just tell Streetcar uh, beat by beat, the plot of Streetcar, you can summarize it in a really blunt way. Uh, and it's a very uh, rapey play, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, to, to mm-hmm. use a, an ugly term. And uh, there really isn't too much redeeming in it in terms of literally this is what the animals in the zoo did that day. Right, right. But And this is what I mean. The contrast of his heightened poetic language to the raw, uh, guttural truth of what the theater, of what physical life is. Right, um, right. And that that's one thing. And as a modest, modest playwright myself, like that's one thing that theater really excels at is you have this, at least in the West, we have this rich, well, as humans, we have this rich literary tradition that we mm-hmm. can draw on and our language is so sophisticated, but then you dump it into flesh on stage yeah. and that contrast is immediate and yeah. it comes across. Right. Um, and it, right. it really, in terms of play to to film adaptations, there's really nothing better than than Streetcar, and then yeah. the next the next big play for him, which was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, how would you describe Cat on a Hot Tin Roof to people, Brad? I just watched it again. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Oh well, so as a child of the '80s, watching Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, uh, I believe I saw it. I might have seen it when I was going to the University of Texas and I was taking a film class. But Paul I Newman, s- right? Yeah, Paul Newman is yeah. great in it. Uh, but that was the film I watched, and that was when I realized. My entire life, Elizabeth Taylor had been famous, but she yeah. had been old famous, and it wasn't mm-hmm. clear like who, like why is this old weird like woman who marries a bunch of people? Why is she famous? <laughs> then I saw a Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and I was like, oh, that's why Elizabeth Taylor's famous, because <laughs> she was gorgeous and she was an extremely talented actress, and like so, yeah. I mean, it it it, it has the great. Um, I, it's almost like a and this isn't meant to be demeaning or derogatory to the work whatsoever, but it's almost like a Southern Gothic light a little bit. Mm. Um, but it, it is about sort of like the, 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 the dynamics of sort of intergenerational wealth, um, mm-hmm. faded glory, alcoholism, uh, you know, beauty and, 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 uh, the way that like a loving relationship love ages that and, mm-hmm. and goes through its changes and it's just yes. a beautifully done film and Paul Newman you know Elizabeth Taylor who I, I had realized was as was the 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 phenomenon that she was and Paul Newman who's as good as anybody who ever did it um yeah it's just a, it's a great film 
Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, I think now is a good time for me to talk about my personal story around Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, so of course we were at Texas together and his collection is at the, um, the Harry Ransom. So oh, it is okay. his estate was left to Sewanee in Tennessee, okay. which is an Episcopal university uh, in Tennessee. And they fund a writer's program. And I actually had a, I was a, I had a Tennessee Williams scholarship at one point, you know, a thousand oh, okay. bucks of Tennessee's cool. money. Cool. I like to joke. It was a thousand dollars of somebody yelling Stella. <laughs> right. Uh, right into my pocket. Yeah. Stella. Um, but uh, we were at Texas, and uh, it, there was an amazing exhibition of Tennessee uh, oh, cool. miscellany yeah. at the Harry Ransom Center, which is this this great archival library in UT, at UT Austin. Oh yeah, and yeah. for just let's let's do a Harry Ransom aside for like thirty seconds. Sure. If you live in Austin, Texas, which you know tons of people do nowadays. You do not have to be a University of Texas student to go there. You can just go there. You have to go through like a 20 minute orientation. So they teach you how to handle the materials. And it is the largest and most profound literary archive in the United States. And maybe the world, actually. It is um, a major archive. Like yeah, Crowley's tarot deck is there. Right. right? Mammoth's yep. collection is there. Yeah. If I read, any, if, yeah. I read William Faulkner's letters there. Um, I read uh, all kinds of background production when they were trying to turn uh, Hemingway's um, It's Not the Sun Also Rises uh, for Farewell the Bell Arms Tools? When, oh, farewell. when they were turning it into a film because there's also a substantial film archive associated with the Harry Ransom. It's, it's, a, it's like for a person who is interested in literature and film, it's kind of a religious experience. To it's be a mecca. You really can't it really believe is. it. It's, yeah. it's a very special place. And you can we, put your hands on this stuff. You write down on a list, I want to see this. And then five minutes later, somebody comes and they hand you William Faulkner's handwritten letters. It's, it's unbelievable. Remarkable. Yeah. Well, so we were, the, we were there uh, in, in my first year of graduate school. We were doing we were writing short plays that were sort of inspired by Tennessee Williams and by his miscellany. One of the fun objects that was there under glass was Marlon Brando's little black book from uh, the period of streetcar. Mm. He, because Brando was a, a total playboy uh, okay, yeah. and he, it was just a, a black book full of telephone numbers of <laughs> mm. different people, many right. uh, lovers, would-be lovers, et cetera. And right. apparently the stage manager didn't get on with uh, Brando. And okay. so he lost the book. And the, the story we were told is that the stage manager found it but never returned it. And nah. it was, uh, I found your iPhone, but you're you're uh, hosed now, buddy. Yeah, you should have okay. should have been nicer. But the <laughs> this is a this is a very personal personal story. But I was at the Harry Ransom Center working on a play by Tennessee Williams, working on something um, like a short play in, inspired by the Glass Menagerie, when the sheriff called to tell me my own mother had passed away. So I was sitting as a playwright surrounded right. by this, and I'm not trying to make wow. this about me, yeah, no, surrounded that's... by all of this material of wow. this haunted playwright. So I'll always mm. associate that personal moment yeah. with, and there's something, some strange synchronicity Absolutely. Um, about it. And I was, I was reminded of it because we're, we're moving into the, the sort of the last act, the latter act of Tennessee's life. I'm going to kind of blast through, mm. um, 
uh, sort of here toward the end, we'll listen to another clip of his, but okay. there's, um, his mother would pass away. Um, I think, I think she died in 1980. I'm kind of jumping around here mm-hmm. for the sake of the story, but, um, Wait, 1980? She made yeah, it in 1980? Yeah, she, she lived to be 95. Um, but this fellow, James Grissom, whose book is worth, worth checking out, um, talked about after his mother passed away, how much he loved his mother and how much he, he missed his mother. There's a Southern saying, which I didn't know, but Tennessee would be unhappy uh, you know, after his mother passed away. Yeah, yeah. And he, he would say, I've got mama bones. And when you have mama bones, it means you, your mother's passed away or you miss your mother so much that the smell of a perfume or of a flower or something that reminds oh. you of her hurts you all the way down to your bones and you got yeah. mama bones. Wow. Um, so I, I had mama bones had for mama a while, bones, man. man. Um, but no, there's something mm-hmm. poignant and, and beautiful about, you know, you've dedicated, if not your life, a lot of energy and your soul and your efforts and your passion into writing plays and to be there amongst the, the, you know, the, the objects that he had touched and infused and to have that, that's, that's, it's a hell of a moment. I think, yeah, yeah. again, it's just a little bit of a personal side. Yeah. I'll always have that, man. I mean, it's pretty wild. I mean, I'll, it's you, Life throws you sorts of sort of weird um, moments like that. Yeah, and, if you're uh, a writer, you catch them. And, yeah, for sure. And, well, so you know, we're in, we're still in the his heyday, and I'm just going to blast through it. So he writes some plays between um, you know Streetcar, then he writes Summer and Smoke, which is another uh, successful play. Writes a play called The Rose Tattoo, which was originally written for the Italian actress, um, whom I think he mentioned in the. Yeah, um, he does mention her in there. Yeah, yeah. and she refused it she refused to do it on Broadway because her English wasn't good enough. Mm. Um, but by the time it was time to make a movie out of it, she was willing to be in the film version. But okay. these film versions, like of the, like the Rose Tattoo, it is baffling because you, you watch Streetcar and it's so iconic and it's just mm-hmm. burnt into your mind. Mm-hmm. And then you watch the Rose Tattoo and you go, what is, what even <laughs> is this? And this is the, I think, is that the one? Is it Rose Tattoo? I think the Rose Tattoo might be the one where they end up in a strip club and it's like all okay. 30 seconds and you see yeah. legs and you go. So clearly at one point he was a, the the film uh, content that was produced on Tennessee Williams back uh, is, is uneven. I'm just yeah. going to say that. So uh, do you think um, something got lost? Something got lost by Tennessee in writing it. Something got lost in between him, the play I, and the my film. My impression is that something got lost between the play and the okay. film. I mean, okay. film is, it's such a different animal. It really is. Yeah. And Cat on the Hot Tin, uh, hot tin Roof as a film is so incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one that he wrote uh, called Baby Doll. And the plot of Baby Doll, it's the only <laughs> thing. Yeah, right. It's the only thing that you would um, like. It's the only uh, screenplay that he wrote specifically to be a screenplay. Okay. And if I give you the plot, it sounds like it could just be this like barn burning, sexy, dangerous play. And this is a theme that comes up again and again is, is older characters. He'd be perfect for, for the Twitter age gap discourse Mm. right now because it's older characters who have these forbidden, impossible affairs with younger Mm. characters. I mean, Mm. Blanche, Blanche, sleeps with a 17 year old student blanche is like a character out of um um oh my god uh the corrections um 
Oh, Franzen. Franzen. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, Blanche yeah. is a teacher who diddles one of her students. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, that I, I, that tends to be forgotten. I mean, you know, there's all these yeah. great lines, but it's like, that's yeah. her backstory. She was run out of town like a witch. Right. Uh, right. For seducing a teenager. Yeah. Um, Baby Doll, the, the plot is there are two rival gin mill owners, uh, and the one gin mill owner burns down the other gin mill owner's gin mill in order to <laughs> drum up business. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give it, I'm just going to give my no, ad. I like this. Yeah. yeah. And then we'll, we'll actually look at the Wikipedia. And, but then like, uh, the, the rival whose gin mill has been burned down, like forces the guy to work overtime at his gin mill or something. And, and, and the, the guy who burns down the gin mill is married to a 19 year old mm. who's just, and he's like a middle-aged man married right. to a 19 year old who's just about to turn 20. And it's revealed that she was married off uh, while her father was still alive in kind of like a rush marriage so that he could give her away. But the understanding was that she would be married off, but the marriage wouldn't be consummated until she was 20. Oh, so she's in this married. Ticking. Yeah. And there, yeah. there are these scenes and she sleeps in like a, a crib, you know, in a, in a, in an unfinished house, in a, in an unfinished bedroom and like sucks her thumb. It's very Lolita and yeah. very weird. And I think it's like part of the reason it doesn't necessarily translate now is that I think a lot of it is, was like very queer coded. Like, okay. I think, I think yeah. they were trying to say one thing, but restricted by a million do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this was a older man, younger man relationship that was sort of being converted into this thing that doesn't possibly, quite land the same yeah, way. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Yeah. I mean, and they call it, yeah. And it's, this is, um, Elia Kazan, the guy who, the guy who directed, um, Empire Strikes Back, baby. Uh, no, 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 you're, no, you're, Wasn't you're he? no, 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 you're, you're confusing him with, um, oh, it's, uh, no, Kazan, Kazan is the guy who directed, um, Streetcar. Director, okay. not writer. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> wait, who directed Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> I, didn't George Lucas direct uh, Empire or wait, Strikes Back? Somebody wrote one of those three no, no, Star I, I know Wars movies. I know you're thinking of because we met him. It was yeah. um, who was no, that guy? Oh my God! Why can't I remember his name? Anyway, I thought it was Kazan. No, 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 no. <laughs> so my bad. <laughs> I'm right. just displaying my Lawrence. Here. Lawrence Kasdan. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, that's, that's all right. Uh... No, yeah, it's close enough. No, but it's good. <laughs> but no, but 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 you know, you watch Baby Doll. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's weird. And the sense of like comedy doesn't really like, like you watch it and it's one of those movies you put on in the background and it's like a mood and you're kind of like, what is happening? Yeah, and right. you look at your, <laughs> your significant other and you go, what, what, what? They describe right. it as a um, dramatic black comedy produced uh, by Kazan and Williams. This is the one that the church, the, um, the bishop or whoever was the head of the, at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, oh, it's wow, a pretty yeah. pretty major pulpit. Yeah. Railed against this movie. <laughs> hey man, that's success in yeah. a way, isn't it? Well, this yeah. is how they describe it. The plot focuses on uh, well, and here's the other thing: it was it was adapted from a one act play, and you can mm. definitely feel, oh, this is a one act play. <laughs> <laughs> By the middle of the just, movie, yeah. you're like, this could have used a second act, right? Um, right. The plot focuses on a feud between two rival cotton gin owners in rural mm -hmm. Mississippi. Mm -hmm. After one of the men commits arson against the other's gin, the owner retaliates by attempting to seduce the arsonist 19-year-old virgin bride with the hopes of receiving an admission of her and her husband's guilt. Okay. Uh, okay. So it's like, you know, 
Culturally, the film has been credited, credited with originating the name and popularity of the baby doll nightgown. So we're at that huh. level of fame here. We're, yeah, at, we're yeah. affecting uh, yeah. culture and yeah, the whole thing. Um, huh. I don't know, though. I, I, I feel like I got to watch it again because I just didn't get it. I was like, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can see if you trying to turn a one act play. I mean, this, it's just not it's not how a film is structured like right. even no matter how much you stretch the conventions of film it's not gonna lay it's not gonna lay neatly into a one-act play <laughs> the yeah. the wikipedia is funny claims of indecency <laughs> baby doll began garnering controversy prior to its release spurred by a promotional billboard on display in manhattan which depicted an image of baker lying in a crib Ooh. sucking her thumb oh man that is salacious Hey. Was she uh, like? Is she, uh, she? I'm sure the actress is a, a stunner for the day. Yeah. I imagine. Oh, for yeah. sure. Right. Yeah. We have uh, what's her name? Uh, so how involved? Carol was, Baker. So yeah. okay. Well, so so Tennessee wrote the screenplay. That was like the yes. one screenplay he. This wrote. is the one that he wrote, and yeah. you just know they're like, we got you got to make it sexy, Tennessee. Right. You gotta yeah, play it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, because that was his brand. His brand yeah. was you could be middle American people and you could mm -hmm. go and put the red light on for one night and you right. could go take a little trip. Yo, you watch Streetcar. Mm -hmm. Have you been to New Orleans? I have been to New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. you watch yep. Streetcar. There, what's name a better New Orleans uh, movie? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's, it's it. it. Yeah, it's, it's great. It. And yeah. it is and it is sexy even for like the time. It, it's it's seething with like and mm. and yeah, Marlon Brando is is you know, he's as sexy as it gets at, at that time. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, yeah. it's not my thing, but like, right. you can tell that oh, like, sure. there's, you know. Yeah. Well, and he, and he also just embodying this pure mm -hmm. post-war American masculinity, this right. industrial, uh, yeah, danger kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, very intense. Yeah. When he mm -hmm. says we, and we put the colored lights on and you loved it, didn't you love it? And <laughs> we're going to get rid of your crazy sister and it's going to go back to the way things were, you know, yeah. just yeah. great. I mean, yeah. yeah, just oozing sensuality. And that was his brand. And that's yeah. why, that's why all this media on YouTube, all of these neutered bow tie intellectuals, like in New York city and wherever mm. talking about him drive me crazy. Cause it's like, <laughs> no, this is, ah, you gotta, right. uh, you, you, right. you can't, everything, this is not political light this material right, right. Um, no not at all the the catholic church church gave it uh what was the rating a c for um condemned the catholic lead uh, legion of decency it. gave the gave baby doll a c oh man previously yeah i'm not expecting you to know this but i kind of wonder what how his mother felt about that Ooh, right yeah, yeah. i don't know yeah i don't know i mean sure she's still around right so mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one wonders. But uh, he, he is raking it in at this nice. point. Nice, good um, for him. Yeah, he's doing you it. You know, I've noticed mm -hmm. doing this show, every time we hit the point where this person had some success, I'm always like, yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> especially because he didn't come from much. Right, You know, his right. parents weren't uh, Twitter blue checks. You know, right, he wasn't right. handed anything, right, really. Right, right. You know, he went to state schools, let's go. Yeah, uh, yeah. And now he's the, the most famous the man. American yeah. playwright. Yeah, it's um, awesome. Good yeah, for him. love it. Um, Time Magazine called Baby Doll, and this is 56. This is after um, Cat has come out. Uh, Time Magazine called it just possibly the dirtiest American-made motion <laughs> picture that has ever been legally exhibited. Yeah! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Someone's well, got to so, make the dirtiest, so. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. So 
you know, we're kind of, we're kind of arriving at the, the, there's a period in his career where the critics turn on him. Um, and he, you know, he, he writes other, other material, uh, Orpheus descending sweet bird of youth period of adjustment. There's a play called night of the iguana. Um, I think I have heard of that. Yeah. Which is, I think, I think it's a fascinating title. Um, this is as a film, um, actually I didn't, dislike as much as I liked or disliked um baby doll and uh oh what was the other one that I that I found to be oh uh the rose tattoo I just just inscrutable it's one of these things where it's like you put it on a record and you know you just heard music but the, your mind doesn't yeah. process it sometimes that's a sign that I need to go back and watch it yeah it can be that might be that it's really absolutely brilliant yeah, right yeah. I just I just wasn't in the right place for it yeah. um so you have the night of the iguana. Uh, and I think, see, we're getting into, again, you can sort of see the themes that he's into. I think this one would, would be worth watching if you really get into him. Um, you know, uh, you definitely got to watch Menagerie, Streetcar, Cat. And then this one's kind of fun. Um, it's about an Episcopal priest, uh, Richard Burton. So no slouch. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who had a nervous ba- uh, breakdown after being ostracized by his congregation for having an inappropriate relationship with a very young Sunday school teacher. So there's that theme again too, right? Mm -hmm. That age Mm -hmm. gap problem, Mm -hmm. which again, I think for Tennessee stands in for the forbidden arrows. Yeah. It's it's something everybody can maybe find relatable. It's just the cult. It's always there in the culture and so much culture is against it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this thing. Okay. So you read that bit about that was sort of, an exegesis of this idea of streetcar named desire, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the night of the iguana sounds the same. This guy, this priest follows some compulsion and it, it's now he's on a train. He can't get off of in a certain way. Yeah. Well, for sure. He literally yeah. ends up on a tour bus, uh, yeah. he, he giving tours, but, uh, mm. it, it starts with this great scene where the, uh, the congregation is full at church mm-hmm. and everybody's waiting to see what he's going to say. And he has a meltdown on the pulpit. <laughs> Uh, which is a great way to start a movie. Yeah, that's um, great. That is good. And our play. So yeah. he, he ends up being a tour guide at a bottom of the barrel Texas company, Blake's Tours. And he takes a Baptist, a uh, group of Baptist school teachers to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. Okay. And all these shenanigans uh, take yeah. place. Yeah. And uh, cool. Yeah, it, it's fun. That one's kind of fun and worth watching. Uh, it, it just has a little bit of a, more of a hook. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, by the... I think he's Tennessee's an example of somebody who was it was so high that the mm-hmm. fall had to be so hard. Right. Um, the critics really turned on him, um, sort of in the period after. So after like cat on a hot tea, and then it yeah. started to become kind of uneven. Yeah. Uh, the word is that that some of these later plays are worthwhile. Um, I'm sure they are. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's it's like anything else. You have your you have your fifteen. You know, your ten your decade uh, of the hits, you know, and then you, you stick around too long and you end up playing casinos. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of wind down with Tennessee here. Um, he, he was living with Merlo, um, his lover. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're right around this time. They had a break at one juncture. Uh, let me, pull something up so he's living in new york this whole time or he was between new york and key west 
Oh, okay. okay. And at this point, he's so rich, he's going wherever he wants. Right. He's, I don't doubt he spent time in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read about Merlot because it's so important. Uh, so Merlot was a second generation Sicilian American. He was in the Navy. Uh, they vacationed in, in Italy. That's what inspired him to write The Rose Tattoo, which is a passionate comedy about old lost love and newfound love in the life of a family of Sicilian immigrants. So he's drawing this from his um, experience meeting Merlot. Mm -hmm. um, it stands out as the only major uh, play by Williams that has a happy ending. Oh, okay. Uh, so he was, Merlot was a uh, steadying influence on Tennessee. So you can sort of see Tennessee finds the gutter, is a mess, drinking drugs. Uh, what was his, I'm sorry, what was his drug of choice other than alcohol? Uh, I think it was, they say barbiturates. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, let me look okay. it up. Yeah, yeah, barbiturates. Yeah. Um, he would talk about the, the pinks, which are mm -hmm. like the little, the little pills. Mm -hmm. um, so depressant downers, yeah. downers. Um, he would, I mean, as, it, as the alcoholism would progress, he would, he would use it to put himself to sleep. That was right. how he slept. Right. Um, coffee, cigarettes all day. Right, 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 right. Oh, now it's time for the, for the mm -hmm. bourbon and the, and the pinks. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it was said that people were drawn to Tennessee because he was a celebrity, but the ones who stayed with him stayed because of Merlot. So Tennessee mm. is this bright light, this bright beacon, and Merlin is, or Merlot is this thing that kind of sort of steadies mm. it. I love this little uh, uh, story um, or this anecdote. When once asked by the Hollywood mogul Jack Warner at a dinner party, and what do you do, young man, Merlot replied, I sleep with Mr. Williams. <laughs> um, they had they had a falling out, but when Merlot was diagnosed with lung cancer, Tennessee um, returned and looked after him until uh, until his death in September of 60, 63. Mm -hmm. So we're after the night of the uh, the iguana, um, and. Uh, after this, things start to get really bad. The plays after this would play for 29 performances, right. uh, 12 performances, Oof. which, uh, you know, there was one that closed after six perform performances, yeah, which yeah, yeah. starts to get really, really rough, uh, yeah. you know. Um, so after the, the loss of Merlot, uh, Tennessee descended into catatonic depression, mm. drug use, um, hospitalizations, he was committed oh, yeah. a number of times. Okay. He submitted to injections by a fellow named <clears throat> Max Jacobson, who's known popularly as Dr. Feelgood. He was a Dr. Feelgood patient. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Feelgood. Right. How does the song go? Oh, I don't know. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was, and they would talk about vitamin injections, right. but it right. was amphetamines. Yeah. Uh, it was the same thing they were giving Jack Kennedy, right? Oof. Yeah. So he was combining these with second all to, for insomnia. So we're going to send you up. Trust the science, Brad. Yeah, that's right. Send you up and we're going to take you down again. Yeah. And yeah. Um, his mother influenced him to convert to Catholicism, the one true faith. Um, he, he said with a <laughs> wink. Um, <laughs> he, he joined the, uh, the Catholic Church, but he claimed never to take it seriously. Um, he never really overcame... Uh, the dependence on drugs yeah. after this. His mother died in uh, 1980. He's got mama bones. Mm -hmm. um, and he would go on these talk shows 
uh, during this period. Uh, and there was a case where, and we're going to listen to it now, where he would he famously went on a, went on a talk show after being uh, let out of a of a psychiatric ward, and with a with a very serious slur, uh, a drunken slur, talked about being on the wagon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, we're gonna listen to that now, Brad. Check your phone. I'm gonna send it to you, and uh, we'll come okay. back after that. Then Dakin took a more drastic step. In 1969, he checked his brother into Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, the psychiatric ward. He was diagnosed there as dying of acute drug poisoning. And so I had no choice but to, uh, to keep him in. And so I, I kept him in for three months until I totally dried him out. Mr. Tennessee Williams. After his release, Tennessee Williams went on national television. The David Frost show, uh, Tennessee was clearly drunk. And it was one of the few times that anybody ever saw him swish. Drunk or not, Tennessee bragged about his newfound sobriety. Right. I'm on the wagon now, and I must say it feels very strange. You've given it up. I allow myself one drink a day. And you've given up sleeping pills as well. Yes, I had to give them up. I'm just uh, on myself now. <laughs> and Frost was egging him on, trying to get him to talk about his homosexuality. How about the things like the homosexuality and so on? Does everybody live with that too? Williams dodged the issue, then came up with a one-liner that delighted the audience. <laughs> but I've covered the waterfront. <laughs> Covering the waterfront with Tennessee yeah. Williams. <laughs> Doesn't he, even though it's tragic at this point, yeah. this is 1970, yeah. things are but not God, going God, he's well. a charismatic guy, though. You, you, know? you would want to have, uh, I'm sober right now, but you would want to have a drink with this oh, guy. God, could you yeah. imagine stories yeah. and the, the storytelling and the, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. and the, the wit, the bon mot, the right. perfect phrase mm -hmm. thrown at the right moment that yeah. sense of timing yeah. uh which of course you need as a playwright yeah. uh but not every playwright is able to do that as well you have well, a lot of yeah. very bookish very sure yeah um yeah just fun and the yeah. stories you know i mean and if you're interested in more of this again that james grissom book is quite good mm -hmm. tennessee would employ this young man to almost to go around and to make overtures to all of the people from tennessee's past particularly the women to see if they still loved and cared for him mm -hmm. because he was mm -hmm. so he felt very lost right. uh, near the right. end and he you know he wasn't able to reproduce the the greatness that he that he had in the forties and the fifties. Yeah. And he says as much in one of the interviews, he goes, uh, I know that I won't, I can't produce a, a great play, but I think I can write a good play that will fill, fill, yeah, uh, theaters. Seats, I'm not yeah. senile. He said in yeah. one interview, yeah. uh, and Dick Cavett has, uh, if you go on YouTube, there's a, like a 45 minute interview with him. Yeah, I did watch a bit of that mm -hmm. and it was, it was, it was kind of great. I mean, yeah. you could see that the, there were, you could see that things were, uh, he wasn't at his peak, but man, again, care, just a charismatic, funny guy. Like, um, can you imagine a Saturday afternoon you have a bloody Mary with him in yeah. new Orleans and, you walk around the yeah. French Quarter. Oh my God! Would, yeah, incredible. Yeah, it'd be hilarious, and yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, mensch. Yeah. So, 
there, there's a period here, uh, which I'll write about or I'll read rather. <laughs> I've got writing on my mind now. <laughs> um, as Williams grew older, he felt increasingly alone. He feared old age and losing his sexual appeal to younger gay men. In the 70s, when he was in his 60s, Williams had a lengthy relationship with a fellow named Robert Carroll, who was a Vietnam vet and aspiring writer in his 20s. So again, mm. we've got this age gap thing. Yeah. Williams had deep affection for him and respected what he saw in the younger man's talent. Uh, Carroll with, with Rose was one of the two people who uh, received a bequest in Williams' will. Mm. Uh, he described Carol's behavior as a combination of uh, sweetness and beastliness. Uh, Hmm. Carol had a drug problem. Some friends saw that relationship as destructive. Uh, Hmm. so you can see, you know, how that relationship might work. Uh, when the two men broke up, Williams called Carol a twerp, uh, (laughs) but they, but they remained friends. Um, yeah. So here's his will. Uh, this is, I think this is interesting. Um, I, Thomas Lanier Williams, being in sound mind upon the subject and having declared this wish repeatedly to my close friends to hereby state my desire to be buried at sea. More specifically, I wish to be buried at sea uh, at as close a possible point as the American poet Hart Crane died by choice in the sea. This would be Askimitable, there's a word not here. Uh, literally a, a messed up word. Mm. He was probably drunk and, and stoned. Uh, approximately this geographic point by the various books upon his life and death. I wish to be sewn up in a canvas sack and dropped overboard. Wow. <laughs> so this sense of the dramatic never yeah, goes away, right? right? right. Um, as right. stated above, as close as possible to where Hart Crane was given by himself to the great mother of life, which is the sea, the Caribbean, specifically mm. if that fits the geography of his death. Otherwise, whoever f- uh, fits it. Uh, that is so if, funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, and so we're, yeah. yeah, go on. He wants that to be a one act. He wants his death to be a one act play, that's, right? That's his actual, right. That, his yeah. actual departure. Yeah. That's, that that's the, cool. That the Catholic church condemns. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, so his death was, was very shocking and there was some controversy around his death. Um, on February 25th, uh, 1983, uh, Williams was found dead at, age 71, in his suite at the Hotel uh, Elysee, but he called it Easy Lay, the Hotel Easy Lay, <laughs> because, you know, of his well, yeah, action. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> right, I don't need to explain it. <laughs> yeah, I think I've driven home my thesis here. <laughs> uh, in New York City, it's actually uh, in in Midtown Manhattan on oh, East East. Oh, it's 58. still it's still it's still in operation. Still exists. Yeah, I used to walk by it. I didn't oh, know okay. that. I didn't know it yeah. was a hotel. Easy sure. I should have checked myself in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the report was that Williams had choked to death from inhaling the plastic cap of a bottle of the type used on bottles of nasal spray or eye solution. That's what I had heard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was corrected to say that he had been using the cup uh, to ingest barbiturates and he died from a toxic level of secondal. Oh, oof. Now, accidental 
Right. Probably. Yeah. Well, okay. if you watch the kind of mainstream documentary, the A&E biography, you get different points. There's yeah. one person argues that he may have been killed because he changed his will. Uh, but it just seems like, okay, uh, it seems like a stretch, a little bit of cope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody goes through, you know, you go, oh my God, you know, how could it be? Right. Um, we could have helped him, blah, blah, blah. We tried a lot yeah. of guilt. Um, yeah. So another person was like, there's no, he didn't choke on anything. He killed, he committed suicide essentially. Yeah. Well, so in, much. Yeah. In, in, in that kind of thing, you're playing around in that world. And second all, is, second all is pretty dangerous to my understanding. And, you know, you might have a moment where you pour one and then, you know, you know what? Forget it. Pours two. And knowing that that's enough, you know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or you're so far gone, you just, you don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah. It, it lives in that yeah. kind of uneasy realm. Uh, but, yeah. but certainly. Uh, but by uh, himself. I'm by assuming. himself yeah. in the Hotel Easy Lake yeah. in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great multiple Pulitzer Prize winner, Tony Awards, the whole thing. That's how you go out. He left, uh, well, his brother um, did not bury him at sea. He's buried uh, at Calvary Cemetery in St. Louis, (laughs) Missouri, uh, next to his mother, uh, which is maybe a little painful because he really did not seem to like his time in St. Louis. I'm sure St. Louis is a great town, but yeah, I do yeah. love uh, the, the epitaph or the, the quote on his grave comes from Camino Real, a play of his, uh, which is kind of in the period just before cat um, kind of a, a after streetcar, just before cat. Okay. Um, the quote is uh, the violets in the mountains have broken the rocks. Hmm. This sort of beautiful, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, little a, poetic, a little poem. Yeah. yeah, and he's buried next to his mother, and then his um, uh, his sister. And there's a quote from from his uh, from one of his plays um, on her grave. Um, Blow out your candles, Laura. Mm. Which I, which in menagerie, I believe, is sort of it's a line suggesting you're just give up your hope, blow out your mm. candles. It's time. It's time for it's time. It's fine. Time for the end. So that's lovely. Mm. And his, his uh, headstone is quite cool on one side. It's Thomas Lanier Williams, the third X, Y, Z. And then on the other side, it's Tennessee Williams, poet, playwright. Nice. Uh, and mm. so there's this idea of this constructed identity. Uh, there's a lovely letter that he wrote to his, um, to his mother, uh, which I thought I would read before we ask uh, the traditional yeah. question. Yeah. But I just think this is lovely. Um, let me find it. Uh, I wanna find it here, let's go. So this is, um, this comes from the book uh, from James Grissom, The uh, Follies of God, Tennessee Williams and the Women of the Fog. The other book that I was referencing is Tom, the Unknown Tennessee Williams. Got these at the library. Uh, And uh, this is Tennessee. He wrote a letter to his mother on a napkin after hearing the Andrews sisters saying, I'll be with you in apple blossom time. Mm. So this is, it's almost like a poem to his mother. I think this is lovely. I think of organza and linen, my nose pressed into her bosom, the slightly singed smell where the iron pressed into the fabric. My face rubbed raw by the fabric. Comfort, discomfort, I am not moving. Tell me something, tell me anything. 
when did you realize that to survive, you would need to stumble in the dark rooms of reality until you found a door to a closet, perhaps, that once opened, held a dream or a memory. And suddenly, Mama, you could face grocery lists and alter society meetings and congregation with my father and me. Tell me, Mama, what did you give to me and where is it now? Mm. Yeah, so Tennessee Williams, the great. You gotta, mm. you gotta respect it. If yeah. you're interested yeah. in the theater, he, he influenced uh, a generation of American playwrights, English playwrights. He influenced uh, John Osborne, who, uh, who wrote the famous play Look Back in Anger, uh, sure. Angry Young Men uh, <clears throat> movement in, in uh, London, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and he continues to influence people. His plays are still performed very widely. Right. And right. Uh, the, film, the film material is out there if you want to get it. You can't. Uh, do any better than Streetcar. Just put Streetcar no. on and like dig in, enjoy. Yeah, it's an amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's an amazing film for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would Tennessee be doing now? Uh, I was going to ask you that. I mean, so what? First, is he on Twitter or not? Oh, he's for sure on Twitter. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. but I don't know if he's if he's that busy on Twitter. I think he's yeah. probably a little old fashioned. I would. Yeah. I think he's definitely a literary man on Twitter. Mm-hmm. He's a blue check. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And he's a little above it all, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing, I, and I don't, want, I don't want to dig into it too deep, but we live in such politicized times, and I never got any sense of his politics. Yeah. Very and you don't get really any in his work either. That's a very good point. You know, you think about streetcar, and you think about the way streetcar. He described, and we'll maybe we'll dig a little deeper into this on our Patreon episode. After if you go to dark. A, After Dark, <laughs> patreon.com slash, uh, slash Art of Dark Pod, rather. And we're on Twitter at Art of Dark, dark Pod. Pod. If you like the show, mm-hmm. chuck us a little bit of money each month. Yeah. We put a lot of time and effort into these. And if you enjoy yeah, it. do. Yep. And if you, if you don't want to support us materially, uh, send us a note on Twitter. We like hearing from yeah, people. Yeah, we really subscribe do. Subscribe or tell, yeah. your friend, tell your friends. Yeah, give you us know? a five star on iTunes, yeah, whatever. That'd be great. We, we love doing this and yeah. uh, it's very enriching and uh, worthwhile. I, mm-hmm. It's interesting because I looked up Tennessee Williams on, uh, and we'll get back to the previous thread, but mm-hmm. I looked up Tennessee Williams on iTunes and it's just like on the podcast search and it's like, yeah. uh, no. there's nothing. It's yeah. not a whole lot, yeah. and and yeah. I, you know, I, I don't. Nobody can do anything definitive about any of these great writers, by the way. Oh, these no, great no. creative it's people. Too, That's the whole point. Their yeah. lives defy it. Yeah. Uh, but well, you we could have best. done an entire episode just as long as this on streetcar. Yeah. Oh, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. Um, so what were what was the question before? It was. Uh, was what's he doing? He's on Twitter. He's, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's a literary I was gonna, man. Eh, I was going to go more. I was going to go more deeply into um, one of the. Oh, so yeah. Now I can't go back to the thread. But we yeah. will. We'll dig. We'll dig more into the the, the line politics of stuff. Oh, the yeah. politics. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. No. When, when you think about streetcar, in one of the interviews, he said that streetcar was about because this is a very funny thing. What mm. is streetcar about? Capital yeah. A about. Right. This is right. this is the sign of great art. Yeah. What is a Rothko about? Right. Right. What yeah. is streetcar about? Uh, he said it's something to the effect of it's about it's a it's a cry on behalf of the sensitive people of the world. Mm. Be be more gentle. Don't be mm. so rough with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm. you can see where that lives in in that play. But it has all of this wonderful 
post-war tension. You've got the old South, which has fallen into ruin, yeah. uh, con- you know, which is romantic and fanciful. And Blanche herself says, uh, you know, uh, I never lied in my heart. She's <laughs> living in this romantic fantasia. And then you've got Stanley, the, the, the union man, the, the mm-hmm. factory man, mm-hmm. uh, who's virile in his own way, but right. it's the antithesis to her. And they're in this cauldron. Um, mm-hmm. And then you just have these basic, wonderful, dramatic ironies, right? She thinks she's going to lure the, the friend, Stanley's friend, into marriage. And these women have to find... You can see both in Menagerie and in um, Streetcar, this, this women who are aging into their dotage aging yeah. aging out aging out yeah uh, and this is something that's still again twitter Clock's twitter ticking. age yeah. di- discourse i mean he might yeah. be right in there who knows yeah yeah I, you it's know, I, I didn't get a huge impression of his of his politics i mean on one of the one of the late shows or whatever one of the uh, talk shows he he predicted that we would end up in some sort of nuclear holocaust or whatever yeah. That was not his really his forte. Yeah, and I would expect no. I would expect it to be. I, I kind of I kind of appreciate it. It's actually you, you know, know I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's like you know the artists. I don't I don't think the artist's job is to like convince you to vote for yeah, a certain for political party. one party or the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't I mean you don't yeah. believe in anything. It's just like we're we're yeah. op- you're supposed to be operating at a different level than that. I think. You would have to assume yeah. that he would be left left leaning because of his mm-hmm. politics, but it's you know, but maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. So yeah. it's you're right though. This this has been a relief because it sort of stands aloof. Mm-hmm. It's it's extremely personal. It's about yeah. the erotic and it's about mm-hmm. memory and it's about mm-hmm. madness and the yeah. fear of of going mad, which I think is such a pertinent topic right now. I oh, think, God. Yeah, I feel like uh, we're all kind of afraid of that. We're all... F- <laughs> it's the, the menagerie, right? The yeah. light shooting through the little the little glass figurines yeah. Yeah. Of, yeah. Our, of our ego. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, one, one bad move and suddenly you're canceled and it's <laughs> broken. It. Or, right. Uh, right, yeah. right, right, right. Well, you, you know, but yeah. what we're going to do is we're going to talk for another 20 or 30 minutes on yeah. the After Dark episode, which yeah. is for Patreon subscribers. And mm-hmm. we hope if you enjoy it, you'll you'll go do that. Brad? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, Kevin, that was that was great. You know, Tennessee Williams is one of those people that I, I haven't entirely missed. As I, as I said, I've seen a couple of the films. Um, but, you know, he's he's one of those guys who I always knew was sort of on the – on the Mount Rushmore of American letters, but never had never really understood what his deal was. And I feel like I do yeah. now. So I appreciate it. Well, and, and maybe, you know, somewhere in heaven, he's up there covering the waterfront. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk after dark. Yep. See you in a bit. Bye. Bye.